Welcome everyone to episode 17. Can't believe we've gone this far. Thanks for being here with me. 17 of the Ethi Awards, the best and the worst of legal ethics and just ethics in general. We've got a great, great episode for you today. Some very interesting cases. The very first case is in the category of most creative billing. The movie here is the movie Just Mercy. This movie has some personal relevance to me because it's a movie about Brian Stevenson, uh, the renowned Harvard lawyer who is everything that I was supposed to be. I went to Harvard too. Uh, I do this. He's actually out there getting people exonerated. His parents are proud of him. I kind of hate him, really. But that's all envy. I really have, have a lot of respect for him. And, and the bottom line is that it's a very sad movie because it just shows me what a loser I am. But more importantly, it's about the movie is about him getting somebody exonerated, right? Who's on wrongfully convicted of a murder. And this case is very similar. Let's get a clip from the movie. I'd like to ask you that question one more time. Was the testimony that you gave at Walter McMillan's trial true? No, sir. Not at all. Order, please. Did you see Mr. McMillan on the day Rhonda Morrison was murdered? No, sir. Did you drive his truck to Monroeville that day? No, never did. Did you go into Jackson Cleaners and see Mr. McMillan standing over the body of Rhonda Morrison? Absolutely not. Thank you. No further questions, Your Honor. The court hereby grants the defendant's motion. All charges against you are dismissed, Mr. McMillan. And this case out of North Carolina shows that life does really imitate art at times. In 1983, an 11-year-old girl was found raped and murdered. Horrible, obviously. The police pick up two brothers. They're 19 and 15 years old. They pick them up for questioning. Some people said, hey, we, we thought they saw them somewhere around you know, the victim's home. And both boys are brought in for questioning. Now, both of them are mentally disabled. One is able to read at a second grade level, and he's the more advanced one. The other one's not able to read at all. At the end of hours of interrogations, both boys sign confessions because they've been promised that if they just admit it, they can go home. They want to go home. It's been hours. They agree. Of course, they don't get to go home. Not only did they not get to go home that day, they get convicted on the basis of these confessions. The 19-year-old gets a death penalty, and the 15-year-old receives life without parole. Now, 30 years later, they're actually exonerated by DNA evidence. They find that there's a cigarette butt at the scene of the crime. And when they test that, they find the saliva on that butt matches another gentleman who actually was a next door neighbor of the victim at the time and a guy who was currently at the time in prison for, you guessed it, rape. So they think they now got the real killer and these two men are exonerated after spending 30 years each in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Now, like most states, North Carolina 
has a victim compensation fund for people who've been wrongfully convicted. It's sort of a formula, how long you've been in jail, etc. And you're entitled to money up to a maximum of $750,000. And both men are expected that they're going to get this. They've met the, the statutory requirements. But one of the things that's required is that they get a pardon from the governor. Just, you know, paperwork that needs to be done. They're put in touch with a Florida lawyer, which is kind of interesting because this happens in North Carolina. They're, you know, they're going after the money in North Carolina, but they get a Florida lawyer and he has them sign a contingency fee agreement where he says, I get one third of the money. And by the way, not just for getting you your money, but even if you fire me, I'm still entitled to one third of whatever you get with some other lawyer gets it for you. Now, to his credit, this lawyer does get them the money. He gets the pardon from the governor and they get $750,000 a piece. Now, the way it breaks out is that $1.5 million, he gets half a million, and the two of them get their other half a million. So everybody's gotten a half a million dollars. Except for the brothers don't really have that much money because during all this time, they've been trying to figure out how to live and have living expenses. And so they've been borrowing money based on getting this money in the future at, by the way, a whopping 41% interest. Also, they got family members who are taking advantage of them, you know, asking for money, etc. They're pretty much broke by the time they get their share of the money. But that's okay because a lawyer has filed three other lawsuits. He's suing the city, the county sheriff, and the state investigations bureau for course in these settlements. He tries to quickly come to settlements with the city and they agree to $1 million. The city's going to pay $1 million to these guys total. The lawyer's going to get another $333,000. At this point, the judge says, wait a minute, you're getting rich off of this. You're tripping. This is a settlement. And how much did you get last time? And the lawyer said, I got a half a million dollars last time. Well, he hemmed it high, but eventually admitted to it. And the judge said, no, no, you're crazy here. You've taken advantage of these people. The lawyer here tries to get cute with his argument and says, I take advantage of anybody. These are grown men. They're older than me. They're 50-something years old. And the judge says, but, but they're mentally disabled. I said, no, please, they're fine. I played, I played poker. They, they whooped me last week, all right? You should see how they play dominoes. Trust me, these guys are, are geniuses. And I'm exaggerating a little bit. But the lawyer says, hey, they're grown men. They can take care of themselves. But that's the opposite of his argument. His argument is, no, they couldn't take care of themselves, which is why the city, right, the county, and the State Investigations Bureau owes them money because they took advantage of these people who were mentally disabled. So you could see that the lawyer is now arguing against his case because he wants to get his money. The judge is not having it. He throws the lawyer off the case, says, boy, bye. Of course, that's not the end of it. The bar obviously is going to take a look at this because one of the things the lawyer has done here is he may have charged an excessive fee. Here's the weird thing about legal fees. They're not subject to the free market rules. The rules of a free market, by definition, are any fee that someone's willing to pay you is reasonable. That's really the definition of reasonable is that some fool is willing to pay it. That's how we think about it. That's how we value houses, right? <laughs> Whatever the people are willing to pay for the house, that's what it's worth. However, legal fees don't work that way. Even if someone's willing to give you their house for a handful of magic beans, right? You, you can't <laughs> do that. And as lawyers, you actually have to show that your fee is reasonable. Now, in one sense, 
it's hard to argue that a third contingency fee is unreasonable because that's actually kind of the going rate. Actually, it'd go up to 40% if you have to go to trial. But in this case, a lawyer's not going to trial, at least for the money he got from the state, from the restitution fund. That's not a trial thing. That's a statutory right award. You don't have to go prove damages. You don't have to ever go to court. You simply fill the application out. Make sure you have all the paperwork. You probably shouldn't get, all right, a third of the money right, for that. The lawyer says, well, all right, fair enough. But you understand, you guys are just coming after me. And the reason you're coming after me is because all the other lawyers are jealous. You know, the ones who got him out of prison. Because I didn't do that. But they're all jealous of me. And basically, he tries to argue, you know, haters going to hate. Uh, Taylor Swift, right? Haters going to hate, hate, hate. Shake it off. Shake it off. Um, I'm going to tell you, any Taylor Swift defense is going to swiftly get you probably disbarred. Not going to work very well here. Certainly, they're all jelly of me, right, is not working here. At the end of the day, the Disciplinary Hearing Commission in North Carolina decides that the lawyer is wrong. He needs to pay the price for victimizing these two men who've been horribly victimized by the system already. And so they said, we're going to suspend you for five years. Now, they did throw in this all the branch. They said, okay, you know what? If you pay them back half of the money that you got from them, the half of the half million, if you pay them back $250,000, we'll let you get your law license back in two years. If I understand the process correctly, I imagine this lawyer is going to exercise, I think he has one more appeal to the state Supreme Court, he's probably going to take it. You're certainly not going to want to write a half million dollar check or a quarter of a million dollar check unless you've taken this as far as you can. But here's what's going against the lawyer. Not the one-third contingency fee, but I think what the lawyer's going to have problems with here was his absolute disregard for these two men. One of the things he didn't do is he didn't set up like a trust for them or advise them against taking out loans that have interest rates of, say, oh, I don't know, 41%, loans he knew about. He was like, look, my name is Bennett and I ain't in it. The problem, of course, is that his name isn't Bennett. And as lawyers for a mentally disabled person, you need to be all up in it, or at least to bring in someone who works with these people in this kind of situation. In North Carolina, there are actually a few groups who do this. So this lawyer has shown complete disregard for his client and made it clear that, you know what, the lawyer is just in it for self. And so I suspect he's going to spend some time by himself driving Lyft. Because that's how it works when your name is not Bennett. Management wants you gone by the end of the day. Well, just what sort of severance package is management prepared to offer me, considering the information I have about our editorial director buying with company money, which I think would interest the IRS since it technically constitutes fraud. And I'm sure that some of our advertisers and rival publications might like to know about it as well, not to mention... Craig's wife. What do you want? One year's salary with benefits. That's not going to happen. Well, what do you say I throw in a little sexual harassment charge to boot? <laughs> Against who? Against you. Can you prove that you didn't offer to save my job if I let you me? You are one twisted Nope. I'm just an ordinary guy with nothing to lose. That was the classic quitting scene from the movie American Beauty, in which Kevin Spacey quits his job and then tries to get a little extra benefit out of doing so. And here we have a New York lawyer who got disbarred in part 
for the way he quit. And, and I'll explain. The lawyer and some of his boys, uh, they're involved in a very complex pump-and-dump securities scam. And for those who are not familiar with how this works, it means that basically what, what, what the group does is, is that they talk to everyone and they pump up the value of this stock. Oh my God, this stock is going through the roof. This stock is amazing. You've got to buy this company. Now, before they do this, they buy shares of the company. And then when people want to buy the shares that they've been telling how great they are, they then sell their shares back to them and increase prices. It happens all the time. Now, the lawyer here is using his law degree to sort of some use at least, and then he's setting up all these shell corporations, limited partnerships, so people don't know that the same people who are doing the pumping are doing the dumping. However, uh, the SEC is even smarter about these things. Yeah, they, they've kind of figured this out. And so they catch him. They approach the lawyer and say, hey, we got the goods on you, and they offer him a plea deal. 15 months in Club Med, and he has to pay 50000 in restitution. Now, as you can see, uh, this deal pretty much makes his crimes worth it. Uh, who says crime doesn't pay? The lawyer decides he's going to take the deal because he's smart. I, I want a deal like that. I'm, I'm looking for something like that. And, and, and so he sends the state bar his resignation. Says, you know, it's, it's not you. It's me. Um, but we just don't need to be together. Now, why? Because what he wants to do is avoid being disbarred upon his conviction for securities fraud. And so he figures, hey, if he's already resigned... He'll fly under the radio, radar. They're not looking for people who are not members of the bar. And they'll never even know. And then he'll try to unresign, right, when this is all over and he gets out of club fed and go back to pumping and dumping. And like they say in Scooby-Doo, he would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those pesky bar investigators. Two days after sending in his resignation, the lawyer signs a plea deal. A little later, the bar comes back with some questions. And namely, why are you quitting us? We weren't good to you? And the lawyer doesn't respond to these inquiries because he's busy, like, you know, getting packed for jail. And so the bar does some digging and they find out on their own that he's been convicted. And then they say, uh, nah, uh, you ain't quitting us that easy. Uh, we're going to quit you. And they bring proceedings, right, to disbar him. Now, New York has automatic disbarment provisions for certain felonies, big, serious crimes. And interestingly enough, the way that the lawyer had crafted his plea deal, what he pled guilty to does not qualify for automatic disbarment. Um, one thing, shout out to this lawyer's lawyer. Bro, you, you you handled your business. Not only did you get that guy a sweet deal that I'm trying to get, feds, I'll, I'll admit to some stuff I ain't doing. All right, if you give me 15-month vacation with my kids and let me keep all the money, all right? <laughs> but in addition to that, he you know, had this worded so that even the bar couldn't really disbar him for that. However, they disbarred him anyway. Uh, why? Let me read from you how the bar uh, concluded this. We can only conclude that the respondent's actions were undertaken in a misguided attempt to avoid disclosing to this court and the disparity authority that he was facing charges for his federal criminal activity. And we find that his deceptive behavior severely aggravates his already serious criminal conduct. In sum, in order to protect the public, maintain the honor and integrity of the profession, and deter others from committing similar misconduct, we find that the respondent should be disbarred in this state. I say this every week, right? It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Had this lawyer just come clean up front, he could have served a suspension along with his jail time. 
And with all that pump and dump money the feds let him keep, he'd have a sweet office right in downtown Manhattan right now. But he tried to be too smart by half, and now he has no law practice. Our next nominee is in the category of the Critics' Choice Award. And remember, this award is given to lawyers who forget that you really can't be such a critic of the judges that you go so far as to question the judge's competence or integrity. You certainly can't make false statements or even reckless statements. Basically, you have to have the goods. So you can't, for instance, accuse a judge of having nose candy habits or for being distracted with what's underneath their robe, which are two actual allegations made against judges in recent years. If you do make that kind of allegation, uh, you better have receipts. Now, fortunately, the Ohio lawyer in this case doesn't go that far. He's representing a client who's challenging his property tax evaluation. The lawyer says, you know, the tax you levy is too high. We want a downward adjustment. And the lower court says no. They appeal the case to the state Supreme Court. And they also say, no, you're paying this right amount of taxes for you. The lawyer has another case in which a client has the same situation. He thinks he's being overtaxed for the property. The lawyer is lost in state court. The lawyer kind of, in this case, files in federal court and says, look, you know what? We should have, we should get a reduction here. And interestingly enough, the federal court cites the state court, the same case he had before, and said, no, you don't get a reduction here. It's pretty clear from this case that this is why. The lawyer argues, no, 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 no. That case was wrongly decided. And here's why. Because, and he says, the political goal of the state court was to maximize government revenue at the expense of the taxpayer and his or her constitutional right to limited taxation. I don't know if the lawyer played a schoolhouse rock song, right, about taxation without representation in his arguments. I I don't know. But, But here's what I do know is that he ends up getting in trouble for, for these statements. The Cleveland Bar said, you know, we think you violated our rule 8.1, the rule that says you cannot disparage the judges. And they said, look, you made reckless claims about the integrity of the judges, that basically they're trying to protect their income by boosting state tax receipts. They know the law is is, is wrong, but they're, they don't care because they're just trying to make sure they keep their boots. Of course, here's the thing. In every appeal, the lawyer is arguing that the judge, quote unquote, done messed up. Otherwise, there's nothing to appeal. The reason you have an appeal is you say, look, the judge made an error here and we should get a new trial, overturn, verdict overturned, whatever. There's a fine line, however, that must be walked because you can certainly say the judge done messed up. But you have to say, look, the judge made a mistake, an honest mistake. What you don't do is say if the judge is corrupt and or stupid. The former is okay. Honest mistakes are okay. Uh, The latter is what's going to get you into trouble. Now, from a practical standpoint, a lawyer should always stick to the former anyway, that it's an honest mistake, because it's easier to prove. All you have to do is show that they were wrong this one time. On the other hand, you make allegations that the judge is incompetent or corrupt. Now you got to show a pattern of incompetence or a corrupt motive. It's so much easier just to show that the judge, he said with me one time, done messed up this one time, which is all the times you really care about as it affects your case. Now, in fairness to the lawyer, he says, you know what? I understand that. And what you people don't understand is that I have the receipts to prove it. 
You're only taking this one statement I made out of context. I wrote hundreds of pages explaining exactly how the judges were corrupt and how they were just in it for the tax revenue. Now, I don't know how he thinks he proved that in a pleading. Did he submit a video recording of the judges sitting around the table, right, stroking bald cats and saying, we will get all the tax money for the state and give ourselves raises. Bah ha 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 ha. Right? I, I don't even know how that works. I tell you what the lawyer doesn't seem to understand, though, is the First Amendment. Because one of his arguments is that he had a constitutionally protected right to engage in this political speech in his briefs. And the answer, of course, is no, you don't. Uh, as a lawyer, you have very few First Amendment rights with regard to your pleadings and everything in court. You do realize that the judge can order you to shut up. No freedom of speech. And if you say a word, you go to jail. How long? Until the judge says you can get out. That's how much freedom of speech you have as a lawyer in a court of law or even as a litigant in a court of law. We had a case just earlier this week of a lawyer who was on a Zoom call. I'm sorry, a client. He had been a drug conviction. He shows up for his sentencing on Zoom. When he logs into Zoom, his screen name doesn't say his name, but it says, uh, but effer 3000. And by the way, it's spelled out. And now the judge is a little upset about this. And it's funny because the lawyer, you know, the client says, I'm sorry, it was a total mistake. And, you know, I'll take it off. And I'll fix it. Which is exactly what the defendant should have done because there is no First Amendment protected right to spew obscenities in a court of law or in a court of Zoom. Now, back to the Ohio case. In the end, the lawyer receives a one-year suspension, but that suspension is fully stayed. In other words, you have a year suspension, but you don't have to serve any of it. But if you mess up in the next year, right, we're we going to get you. Right? And if you mess up in the year, uh, you'll be making your next political speech uh, to your DoorDash customers. Now, for the rest of us, here's the important lesson. To address the issue at hand, and not just in court, but in life. And let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So oftentimes in our personal communications with people, we fall into the pattern of trying to prove too much. We're upset about a particular action someone took. But rather than addressing the action itself, you done messed up, we go to all kinds of corrupt motives, pattern. You always do this. You're so inconsiderate. I'm using that specifically because this happens in, in my marriage sometimes. I have been known to, fortunately not recently, but in the past, to work later in the evening, on my way home, stop at a place to get something for food to eat, and come home with a bag full of food for me and none for my wife or children. First of all, kids supposed to be in bed. But anyway, my wife might have, you know, has been dealing with them all night, and, and she probably didn't have time to cook herself some dinner. It never occurred to me because I'm, I'm me. And, and she would say things like, you know, you are so selfish and inconsiderate. And as true as those things might be, I never took them well. Because I'm not totally selfish. I have done some things that for other people. Like, bought them a house to live in while I'm at work, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm not totally, right, a monster here. And it's saying too much. She's, because she's smarter than me, learned that's not the way you handle that. So now she'll just simply say, hey, fool, before you come home with food, you ask if we need food. She's not saying that I'm inconsiderate, I'm selfish, I'm a horrible person. Just, here's the action. I don't want you to do that no more. 
you done messed up. That's, I think, a great way for us to handle all these interpersonal conflicts is not through name-calling and labeling, right? But rather in a direct, right, addressing the exact situation. You did this. I need you to do X in the future. Everybody is much happier and healthier. Mr. Speaker. What is it you want? Recall the 7th Fleet from the Sea of Japan and withdraw all 28,500 American troops from the demilitarized zone if you do not comply. If you attempt any operation to retake this building, if you deviate from my instructions... Wait a minute. We can't just recall the 7th Fleet. Then I will execute your officials one by one, and their blood will be on your hands. You have until dawn. I suggest you move quickly. That was a clip from this week's final nominee, the movie Olympus Has Fallen. It's in the category of the Outlawyer Award. It's the award for lawyers who break the law. Uh, this lawyer has broken uh, the law, to say the least. In the movie Olympus Has Fallen, a group of terrorists take over the White House. Well, this lawyer didn't quite make Olympus fall, but he certainly wanted to. On the day after Biden's inauguration, this Pennsylvania lawyer, who was convinced that the election had been stolen, he decides he's going to do something about it. So he packs up his car, he loads in an AR-15, two handguns, all the bullets, ropes, gloves, and for some reason, about $5,000 in $50 bills. Now, I don't even know where he got a $50 bill, nevertheless, a hundred of them, all right? And I don't know how he thought he was going to spend them and not tip the police off immediately, because you hand someone two $50 bills, they call the police. But anyway, he gets in his car, and he's going to head to D.C. Now, he's married, and wives tend to be a little nosy when you see you packing for a trip. And so she says, hey, where you going, honey? And he tells her he's going to stop the steal all by himself, and that he's going to take care of these traitors in Congress. She tries to talk some sense into him. Man, he says, you know what? If you don't leave me alone, I'll kill you too. She says, all right, you know what? Have fun. And then when he leaves, she calls the FBI and said, my husband has lost his damn mind. Y'all better go get that fool. Fortunately, the feds take this threat seriously. You can understand why. It was, it was a time when you take all those threats seriously. And so they begin pinging his phone and locate him on Interstate 81, heading towards D.C., they run, they catch up to him at a gas station. He's trying to pass those ridiculous $50 bills. And by the way, I understand that's a currency, but I haven't seen it in about 50 years. All right. In any event, um, they move on in, arrest him. And instead of taking him to jail, they take him to a mental hospital. By the way, it's a 71-year-old man. And they say, look, you know, mass shootings, that's a young man's game. All right. We think you might have some mental issues. It's maybe, you know, demeaning, beginning dementia. Let's take you to a mental institution. Well, apparently, this middle institution doesn't have patient confidentiality because the nurses talk to him and then come out and say, oh, yeah, uh, this fool's going to kill everybody. They, they get so much information from the nurses here that it takes two weeks to get him, this lawyer indicted by a grand jury. His trial is set for August. He's facing about 10 years if convicted, and he's got to be. And that's pretty much a death sentence when you're 71 years old. This lawyer apparently has no more plans of life on the outside because he's already agreed to disbarment by the Pennsylvania Bar. Remember, he hasn't been convicted yet. Even if his lawyer comes up with an amazing Johnny Cochran slogan, right? Um, you know, if the bills were 50s, my client's guilt is iffy. 
All right, I mean, give me give me some time. I'm, I'm doing this on supply. But the point is, I'll get a better rhyme later. But but even if the lawyer you know pulls the miracle of the century, it doesn't matter because this lawyer has already agreed, right, that he's not going to practice law anymore, and it's probably a good decision because I don't care if, even if he's not convicted, nobody's going to the Unabomber right for legal advice. His his career is over. Now that said, I probably shouldn't have to say this. I'm almost embarrassed that I do have to say this. But I'm going to encourage you, if, even if you think that the other side has stolen the election, uh, you shouldn't try to do a recount with an AR-15. That's not exactly the right counting equipment. Um, I don't know how you're going to do this, count this by bullet casings or shells, uh, but that's not really how anything works. And I'm really sad and disgusted that my job as a grown man is to tell you that. But it is because we have a 71-year-old man who decided to do this. As a little hint, we talked about this before, you'll notice that um, when you get older, you don't get more leeway with the bar, you get less. This is a 22-year-old, he probably doesn't have to agree to give up his law license already. Um, if you do something bad after, I don't know, 35, um, we're pretty much done with you. And certainly, sadly, at, at 71, um, this is it's over. Uh, for him. So if you're older out there, uh, you really need to m mind your manners because uh, we'll take your license. But what we won't take is my wonderful reviews that you guys are putting up on the Internet. So thank you for that and continue to do so. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, uh, maybe even, um, you know, SurgicalSuture.com, wherever it is that they rate podcasts. Just tell your mama. Just start yelling in the street. All right. At the award podcast, you got to love it. And I'll see you people next week with even more lawyer ridiculousness. And finally, if you're a lawyer and you need your CLE, don't hesitate to get it from Mesa CLE. This is your comedic legal education, but it still counts as CLE. Mesa, M-E-S-A, C-L-E dot com. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, please feel free to go to patreon.com. Either look us up at Mesa CLE or the Ethie Awards, and we thank you so much. See you next time.